Hello and welcome to the Movie Bunker podcast. It's me, Chris. And me, Matt. Oh, lovely. Uh, you sound more and more like a uh, like an 80s DJ every time we do this. Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know what the Movie Bunker is all about, Matt, what, why didn't you describe it this time? Because last week I, I went on a bit. Yeah, you did. Took a while. <laughs> okay, so the Movie Bunker podcast is our little love pet where we took films which have been poorly rated and reviewed them ourselves to see whether or not that was fair or not. Our intention was to find diamonds in the rough, things you would have skipped over because they're in the bargain bin, not on TV, etc, etc. But we also get some guests in. Um, we allow them to bring a film along which is also poorly reviewed, which they want to release into the wild and tell other people about, which brings us to today's podcast, yeah. where I spoke to Boyd Hilton, who unceremoniously bugged that trend <laughs> and he just brought a film into um to lambast with the rest of us <laughs> so, oh <laughs> yeah so um uh, he picked uh, mission to mars which is a 2000 film by brian de palma so it had all of the sort of it had chance right it had a good mm. thing it was everyone was going to watch this film spoiler alert not particularly good and then afterwards you can hear chris is what happened next on what film is it chris district nine district nine so this is what's going to happen directly after that film ends not a sequel no. hey chris no no definitely <laughs> not a sequel i haven't been wasting any time this evening trying to think up a sequel idea that's not the premise of this segment that we're doing currently awesome and uh, just a quick reminder as well that we're taking part in super pod this year which is in aid of sports relief and that's being held on the 8th of march we're we're on the 8th aren't we the we 7th and 8th on the sunday and we'll play the trailer for that afterwards and we'll start putting up a bit more information on our social media outlets now uh, yes because there's loads of ways of you can get involved you can watch and listen through smart speakers and things like that uh, and also you can come along because it's free uh, up until about seven o'clock i think and then they start charging you but if you do come along donate obviously because it's for sports relief but yeah, yeah in the meantime i suppose you better listen to this a magnificent guest hello and welcome to the movie bunker podcast um today i'm joined by boyd hilton hello hello <laughs> how are you today I'm good. Can you hear me on your very clever uh, technical system? I can hear you very well. Actually, my technical system, you must have a, a half-decent microphone at the very least. I mean, half-decent, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself, boy? Yes, I am. Um, uh, I've been doing the same job, my day job, for 21 years. Oh, my God, that's, that's depressing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> which is which is entertainment um, director of Heat Magazine. Um, so I am in charge of the magazine's entertainment coverage, which mainly involves TV and films, basically. I mean, we've got books as well, but I don't get involved, much involved in that. Um, and the occasional um, bit of music, whatever. But basically, yeah, TV and films is my, is my thing. And um, I've also now got a second job, which is uh, deputy editor of Pilot TV magazine, which is, um, comes out with Empire, yep. quarterly, uh, current issue out of the moment. Um, and that's like, uh, we've been, that's been going for about 18 months, I think. Pilot TV podcast as well. Um, if you want, uh, TV, if you want, um, peak TV recommendations and news that comes out every Monday and, uh, and I just write about films and TV. Yeah. Um, and I host a lot of things. I host a lot of like events and things, you know, like Q and A's. So yeah. that's roughly what I do. I want my, 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 um, I guess my the, my peak film um, 
moment was I used to sit in for um, Mark Kermode on on the uh, Wittertainment um, program and podcast on Five Live for a period. Of, I think actually I did it for about nearly two years um, with a guy called Nigel Floyd. So because our names rhymed, Floyd and Boyd, we got to do that. Right. For, <laughs> for a period. But it was a glorious, it was a glorious, um, huge honour to do that for, um, for a time, yeah. Yeah, sound incredibly busy. So where do you find time to sort of fit in actually watching? Yeah, it's it, luckily um, in in the office. So I go to the office every day, you know, more or less, and um, I get can watch stuff on your on my um, computer. So I'm watching TV stuff. I'm watching fairly constantly. I think I watched three things today actually. So that give you an idea. Um, three episodes of three different TV shows, um, whilst you know, doing work as well, multitasking, and then going to screenings, you know, probably a couple of times a week, um, at film screenings, that is. And yeah, it's, it is busy, <laughs> but you know, but it's better, better to have a job that you like and keep you busy than, you know, do something. Yeah. Sure. I think if you describe to quite a few people, like, you know, your, your job was uh, uh, fundamentally around watching television and going yeah. to the cinema. You're not yeah. going to get too many people going, oh my God, how do you possibly go? Yeah. <laughs> if I even began to complain about it, I, I would hate myself. So yeah. <laughs> don't <laughs> complain. No. Yeah, it's good. It's great. Yeah. So uh, can you remember when the sort of like the, the, the joy of uh, the love of film started off for you? Is it something you've always pursued or did you just kind of fall into it? Yeah, I think um, my parents um, uh, took me to the cinema fairly regularly when I was growing up. So I remember um, they'd take me to things like James Bond films. I think, you know, from a very early age, um, uh, I was born in 1967. I'm going to make that clear. So I think by about um, the time I was five or six, I have memories of seeing James Bond films. I think they took me to see Diamonds Are Forever when it came out. Um, And so... uh, (laughs) Right from the start, I love going to cinema. Yeah, it's, it's, so you know, I, I would, I'd go and see films once or twice a week throughout my life, really. Um, mostly, yeah. So, um, and then when I was about, I would say, in your teenage, early, early teens, I was getting into, you know, proper, um, kind of almost like, you know, thinking about directors, and you know, I got, I loved Hitchcock when I was about thirteen, I think, twelve, thirteen. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been pretty constant. Yeah, I would say. Cool, good stuff. Um, I've got a couple of standard questions what I ask people to come in because it always, um, always interests me. Uh, just here, um, what's the most recent film that you've seen that you were really looking forward to but ended up being quite disappointing? Yes, well, um, I've got a couple of options. One is um, A Hidden Life, which is Terrence Malick's most recent film. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I lo- So I'm a big fan of Terrence Malick and... Um, the narrative around this film was that um, it was a return to form because I think fans of him, like myself, who love his films right up until probably the thin red line, I would say every single film he made, which is not that many, by the way, because they're huge, like 10, 15 year gaps. Yeah. But every film he made up until the thin red line was a masterpiece, like including thin red line. Um, then from then on, I think it, once he started making films regularly, and you know, he's been making them like once every couple of years in recent times, then I think the the quality started to dip a bit, not you know a bit, and certainly then the last couple I think have been poor and kind of just dull and monotonous and all about boring voiceover. But then the, the, the idea of this film, the early reviews of this film, A Hidden Life, were which is a period drama all about set in the war in wartime World War Two and about a man um, refusing to become a Nazi soldier 
so he's a, he's a conscious objector. It's a really interesting, moving story. Yeah. And the yeah. narrative about the release of it from early critics was this is a spectacular return to form. It might even be, you know, of a, of a piece with those early masterpieces. But I did not agree. I found it, it's three hours, it's a solid three hours long. And I think the story could have been told in two hours. And I think when you've got an hour of, of you know, just baggage, it becomes really repetitive to me. And I, and I was devastated by how, how tedious it was as a viewing experience. Um, even though the story is really moving and there's really moving moments. There are incredible scenes in it, but I, I was, I have to, I just, it was so, it was a grind. It was grueling for me to watch that film. So there you go. Um, a Hidden Life, yeah. And the other one quick, to quickly mention, I think, just because um, it's when you get a really good director and a kind of interesting project and a good actor, um, and it ends up being absolutely shockingly terrible. So Hidden Life was just disappointing. Not a terrible film, just boring and long. But Gemini Man, the Ang Lee, um, you know, kind of high concept sci-fi thriller thing with Will Smith playing two versions of himself. Yeah. Was a diabolical disaster of a film. <laughs> and um, I went to see that, you know, an early screening, an early for critics in, 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 in Leicester Square. Um, lovely big screen and you know everyone was really excited about it and it was so awful so it had the, it had the best chance of doing it then had the, the greatest chance of being good for you yeah yeah because you know, Ang Lee I mean it's Ang Lee how bad can it be um, but it's yeah it's, it's mystifyingly awful yeah okay and then the inverse of that question like any films you've seen which you were going oh I don't want to see this I don't and then turned out to be surprisingly good yeah, there's a film called Waves. I don't know if you heard of Waves. It, it um, no. Well, it was in, in the kind of Oscar season, in, in the awards season, which we just finished, obviously, with, with the Oscars the other week. Um, so I, I'm a huge awards season fanatic, so I'm absolutely I'm obsessed with, you know, what, what films are going to be end up winning awards. And there's a film called Waves, which is an American independent um, uh, film um, with um, kind of with Kelvin Harrison Jr. is the young guy in it who's nominated for the BAFTA Rising Star Award and Sterling K. Brown. And um, it's directed by a young director called Trey Edward Schultz, who's a very promising um, young talent. And anyway, it's kind of a, it's a kind of um, family melodrama in which this young guy is an athlete at his, high, at his school um, or college, I'm sure. And it's about his, the, how he kind of, his life is destroyed, spoiler alert. Um, so it was on in cinemas here very briefly, you know, like a few weeks ago, um, like early 2020, I think, or late 2019. And um, it kind of came and went without much attention. And when I was, it's one of those, you get invited, I got invited to screenings of films and you see the poster and you see the description of it. It feels like it's going to be an earnest, you know, um, awards bait type film that yeah. is going to be a bit kind of dull. But Waves is this visually spectacular, kind of unbelievably ambitious um, film in which the opening shot of it is um, like in a, a, two, a couple in a car, but the, the camera does a 360 degree turn um, in the car and you can't really work out how it's done it. So the camera work in the film is extraordinary. It uses about five different um, aspect ratios. I'm also an aspect ratio nerd. Okay. <laughs> so I love a film that, that cuts between aspect ratios and this one has five. I, I do, I am biased towards. It's just a really bold, um, visually stunning, un unbelievably emotionally devastating film. I warn you, if, if you do get to see it, it'll, be out, it'll probably be out on DVD fairly soon, digital download or whatever. Might even be around in some art house cinemas, I don't know. But Waves, it is, 
it's an, I was devastated by it. So both visually incredible, brilliantly acted and directed, and it is unbelievably emotionally gruelling film, but in, in, a, in a kind of really good way. So yeah, that, that, I just didn't fancy it. You know, just, I was like, oh, I don't really know anything about it. It doesn't look particularly interesting. Didn't get that much attention in awards. Do you feel it's like one of those films that isn't good enough to be, but actually it's a real treasure of a film? Oh, wow. Okay, well, mm. I'll definitely put it on the list to watch then. You move now on to your pick um, to talk about today, which is um, Mission to Mars. The, uh, the 2000 Brian De Palma film. This is a truly anomalous formation. It's unlike anything that we've seen so far. We're trying not to go too nuts up here, but we think there's a good chance that this could be water. Of course, if that's correct, then we may have found the key to permanent human colonization. Yes. Okay, we're ready to light this candle. Let's go to Mars. of life on Earth. We've been looking on the wrong planet. Why did you pick this film? <laughs> well, I was thinking, um, you know, what do I go for? I was thinking, basically I was thinking, why don't I pick a, a bad film by a, one of my favourite directors so he is one of my favorite directors he may even be my favorite director in terms of you know i know he, so his output if you compare him to martin scorsese or um, i don't know uh hitchcock who he's often compared to um yeah his his output has been very variable um but his his best films like i'm um, just to kill carrie untouchables um off the top of my head uh are, are among my you know very favorite films of all time and uh, as of and Weirdly, I got to see Just to Kill, which is his kind of, if you like, his, for me, it's his like the most De Palma, De Palma film. Because it's yeah. kind of even more, it's a very violent, visceral, brilliantly stylized um, kind of stalk and slash film, basically, in the 80s. Um, and I, I went to see that with my dad in, in America when I was about 15, which I should not have been able to see that film because it's completely inappropriate for a <laughs> But, you know, I'm still here. I've made it through. I don't think I've been too damaged. And I absolutely loved it and I'm obsessed with it. So then I became obsessed with Brian De Palma, watched everything he's ever done. So I followed his career. And there are Brian De Palma obsessives. There's a film called De Palma about him, made by right. Noah Baumbach, of all people. You know, this quality, you know, um, director of, of kind of essentially art house comedies, really. Yeah. Noah Baumbach. But, um, he, he, it's you know a lot of people worship him. Tarantino, another one. So I anyway, I love Brian De Palma, but I thought, why don't I pick one of the real disappointments of <laughs> okay. his career? Because um, that his body of work, it'd be it's almost impossible to pick out your top five, right? Because it's there's, yeah, 
just like depending on your mood time of day yeah. the inclination of the rain it's yeah. it's just impossible to go right actually no that's my favorite poem exactly go. whereas mission to mars <laughs> yeah whereas mission to mars is definitely not in that top 10 no. or five and I ve- remember very vividly, so I, from, from, you know, from just a kilometre, really, um, I would see every single film he, he released, you know, I'd be there the first day before I got a job actually being able to see screenings of films. I'd be, you know, queuing up to, to, to go to see all his films on the opening day, including Mission to Mars um, in, uh, in 2000, as you say. And um, by that point, I'd, I'd, I'd started working um, for Heat. And so I did get to see it at a screening and I was so excited, you know. I was like, oh, I think it was the first kind of Brian De Palma film I got to see as a, you know, in, vo- in quotes, critic, or at least, you know, as a journalist, having not right. having to pay and getting to see it early and all that. And I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. This is why, this is why I'm doing this job for. And yeah. I was gutted by the, <laughs> by the film. And it's, it's one of those films that I'd say now, it's not the worst film ever made. It's not absolutely terrible. There are things about it. It's kind of, perfectly well made you know technically um because some recent brand of farmer films sad to say you know as, as it gets older and older technically are a bit disastrous actually but at least this one had a kind of you know decent budget um you know decent special effects decent visual effects and cgi it just kind of never really takes off without wanting to um as, uh, to, 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 I'm not saying that deliberately because it's about a, a, yeah. a mission to Mars, literally. No um, one lights the candle, right? <laughs> right, which is a line, thank you. It's a line in the film about lighting the candle, yeah, which is one of the. It's just, it just from the start, it's just a bit inert and kind of, and it's almost difficult to describe just how, which is the last thing you expect of a Brian De Palma film. So it's kind of like middle brow, decent, but, but what you want from De Palma is like vulgar, tasteless nastiness. And, you, and it's just a bit, of, a bit dull. I nearly watched the, um, the wrong film because um, ah. <laughs> I nearly watched Red Planet by accident right. because um, they were out at the same time. Same they time, were. Same yeah. time, and it's one of those, uh, there used to be, it used to happen a little bit more often than it does now, but there, there always used to be these pairs of films that would come out like Deep Impact and Armageddon and yeah. Dante's Peak and volcano and what a yeah, thing yeah. Yeah, um, right, yeah. and then this one was the, the cover so I, I very rarely and in yeah. my mind um because it had been years since i watched this film it was they, they'd kind of merged because i had watched both because of mm. reasons i have no idea why i would have done so um but yeah so it it's just it, it doesn't feel very de palmery this film though does it no no there are i mean there are there are there are Telltale signs, though, if if you um, if if you if you watched it without, if you'd watched every department film ever made, and you're a department fan, and you were plumbed in front of this film, and you and and you know you you might think, oh yeah, there are there are clues that it's a department film. So the opening scene, for example, which is this kind of barbecue um, before the astronauts are about to go off on this mission, yeah, it's all shot in one one quite long take. You know, kind of. Uh, yes, yeah, like a nineteen seventeen kind of. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's the last comparison you'll have to nineteen seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it is, yeah. I mean, he, he like he does love a, a long take. I mean, you know, so it's a very it's a long take, but it's kind of like as, you, as he introduces us to all the characters, these these dudes um, that are about to go off uh, on the mission, and then uh, and there's a quite also the very first shot, of course, um, I've just remembered is is a clever, a very departmentless, clever. You think it's the spaceship going into the sky, um, and you think, "Oh, this, this is starting dramatic," and it turns out to be a toy spaceship. Um, yes, 
as part of this party. And that's a clever shot, I have to say. So it starts off, oh, okay, promising, you know. So it is, it's kind of um, interestingly directed and visually interesting in, in, in the first five minutes. I was sort of transfixed by the weird beer cartons that they had. Yes. So, <laughs> I was like, what, what? This woman's going around and like, handing out drinks. Yeah. And it's like, um, and the weird thing is, is that the cartons are reminiscent now of the smoothie cartons you get now. I'm like, what is this? And then yeah. later on, you see it's got Budweiser down. So that's the future of beer. Although the future's now, yeah. isn't it? Because this is yes. June 9th, 2020. Right. That's another reason I picked it. Because I remember, <laughs> I remembered it set in 2020. And it's, and it's funny how this year is, is one of those, because there's loads of films set in 2020. Someone mentioned this to me the other day. I, I, can't, don't, I can't remember what they are, but apparently it's a very common year to set films in the future and go, because it sounds kind of futuristic, doesn't it, 2020? Yeah. There's something about it. It sounds much more futuristic than 2019 for some reason. Um, and so, yeah, this is set in 2020, Mission to Mars. So there's another reason I thought that'd be to pick it. And so, but after that initial um, long take scene, one take and um, setting the scene and you meet these characters and they, they're going to go to Mars, then there's a really, um, then there's a kind of like a, a blokey, banter chat between the three astronauts isn't there played by tim robbins gary sinise and don cheadle i'm not going to go through every scene yeah. of the film but, right. but just i think from then on that chat right is so stilted and kind of badly <laughs> written and banal and it just fails to do the job it's trying to do of establishing who these guys are they're all kind of the same really they're all just talking the same way and they, none of them says anything particularly interesting yeah and it establishes one of them's got a is in mourning um it's just and from then on it's like oh this isn't going that well. And I think it feels like, you know, when you know within about 10 minutes of a film starting that it's a bit off and it's not quite right for this director. And it feels like, it's, like this film is trying to be a fairly realistic, a fairly believable, a fairly authentic account of what it would be like to go on a mission to Mars, right? Yeah, which um, is quite dull, right? Just lots of yeah. waiting around for things to happen. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, and you feel like De Palma is not kind of not the right person for that. You know, if, if, it's like Ron Howard giving you the big build up to Apollo 13. That works. You know, that makes sense somehow. So I keep comparing it to all the other different vaguely similar films. Um, not the Val Kilmer one you mentioned. No, no. <laughs> so bad. Um, but this one, it's like trying to be um, authentic and believable and, you know, but it's just all a bit off and it never quite, and the script isn't, it, it, all the, the dialogue is stilted from the start. It just hasn't got that thing of being, like having the kind of atmosphere, if you like, of what, what yeah. it would actually be like. It's all a bit kind of basic is, is the problem with that. All the dialogue of the film reminds me of when my young daughter speaks to me. And like halfway through, I'm going, ah, oh, what, what's the point in this conversation? Just, yes. just spit it out. Just, what is this? And right. I had exactly the same feeling whilst watching the people talk in this film. Just yeah, like, that's a brilliant comparison. Oh my God, that's great. Um, every conversation seems about five minutes too long. Yeah, seems to go on too long, exactly. Um, don't really go anywhere. Um, and... And it's almost like, and I feel like he should have gone, he could have either have gone for a 2001 style approach. Yeah. You know, there are, there are sequences that are, that are very 2001 influenced. There's, 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 yeah, there's the, very, very, very 2001 yeah. bits in it. There are, aren't there? So once they're in space, there's a scene where um, they have to do a kind of walk, spacewalk. And that's like pure 2001. Um, but slightly, but not, but he does, he, he almost slightly feels like he's shying away from being as kind of uh, monotonously, um, realistic as 2001 was, doesn't he? So he kind of doesn't quite go for the full, so he doesn't go for the full arty, you know, 
we're really showing you the technical detail of a spacewalk and it's going to be you know like almost spectacularly real and authentic it kind of shies away from that bit so it's neither one thing nor other so it doesn't go down the 2001 route of being metaphysic celebratory celebratory metaphysical of just being in space yeah and it doesn't quite go down the martian route. i know the martian obviously came later and the martian is a very for me like a cleverly real real seeming version of what it would be like to be on mars again there are there are scenes you know, I, I don't know, maybe the guy who wrote The Martian was slightly inspired by Mission to Mars, but there are a lot of similarities between the two stories. Yeah, it feels like The Martian is the part of the film which you didn't see from this film. Yeah, exactly, because Don Cheadle gets trapped on Mars, he ends yeah, up on, yeah. Mars on his own, um, waiting to be rescued, a la, a la The Martian. Um, so, but again, that element of the story isn't done like Ridley Scott did. It, it, that's, that's kind of also rather unbelievable and stilted. And then spoiler alert, it mutates towards the end in the last act into this very metaphysical, alien, you know, philosophical thing, um, which is from like something else. And even then he doesn't seem to have the full, he doesn't kind of go for broke with that element of it either. Again, that could have gone, you know, I don't know, full full on Close Encounters or full on uh, any alien film we had to mention, or even full on 2001 again, you know, out their journey, if you like. It's influenced by all those things but it doesn't have the courage of its convictions. Any, any of those different types of space film it could be, it doesn't have, quite have the courage of its convictions. Yeah, so the, the part where, like, so we, after that sort of first bro scene, um, we kind of cut forward to the mission being sort of like successful kind of thing on Mars itself. Yeah. And this is kind of where the, uh, the sort of science fiction-y sort of aspect of it comes in, is that they go off to find this rock, which then attacks them. Yes, um, and, but that that scene, although quite visually appealing, just annoyed me because they were just stood there for the longest time, whilst yeah. whilst quite clearly a very dangerous thing was happening, like four foot from them, where any sane person would run away. Completely, yeah. It, it's it's yeah. There are lots of moments like that on there where people are doing stupid things for no reason, just to, just to let the film play out. As, and, as, you know. and really um, calmly as well, like the, yeah. where the hole in the spaceship appears. No one's in a rush. They, they go to Gary Sinise at one point. You should probably put your helmet on because we're losing air. And he's like, oh, <laughs> I forgot about that bit. I, yeah. I've not got time for that. <laughs> it's like, well, no. and then he passes out because he's not got any air. It's just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, it is ridiculous, yeah. Um, and... There are little things like the Tim Robbins and Connie Nielsen, who are this married couple who get to go yeah. on, a mission, on a mission. I mean, that would never happen, would it? You know, that I'd really... hope not. <laughs> no, you don't not, yeah. And it's kind of mentioned in the very first scene, someone complains about it, and then it's like, that's the script's way of dealing with the fact that it would obviously never be allowed to happen in real life. But they're, they're not just a married couple, they're really happy. Yes. Sort of, like touchy-feely yeah. man couple. And again, Gary Sneezy's still not quite got over his wife. And they're just rubbing it in his face constantly. They all gather them round to watch them dance and kiss at one point. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's those decisions, is it? It's one of those things you have to see it. I think, you know, I can go bang on about how um, unconvincing and weirdly, um, I keep using the word stilted, but that's the word that what I keep thinking of when it comes to this film. It is, but until you watch, sit there watching That should it, be the movie quote for the poster, <laughs> just Mission <laughs> to Mars, quote, stilted. Stilted, yeah. Um, until you watch it, uh, it, the full stiltedness doesn't come over. So, yeah, so, like, 
there are so many weird things like that where people gather around watching the couple making out and, <laughs> and, and the, you know, the, the, all the dialogue, every single line in this film doesn't work. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly. But it's remarkable how unreal the, the dialogue is. Um, and, and even down to, um, you know, the technical stuff feels slightly off. I mean, I'm sure they did some research. <laughs> I'm sure, you know. But it, it all feels, it just doesn't work on, on any level, that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it is, it's just an odd one. And again, like, I think Brian De Palma, there are flaws in other Brian De Palma films. That's the other reason why I think it interests me so much is you can see, it reminds you of what Brian De Palma does badly in his good films. Right. So... <laughs> There's dialogue in his good, you know, there's dialogue in, I'm sure, in Dress to Kill, one of my favorite films of all time, that is a bit shit, you know, that's a bit kind of basic. But because it's such a visual film, um, because Dress to Kill has long, long scenes when, where there's no dialogue at all, if you like, that's why it works so well. So I think the films, his best films are ones where there's the least dialogue. Carrie is another one, you know, the climax of Carrie, famously, that bucket of blood scene. Yeah. There's hardly any dialogue in that for about 20 minutes, I think, at the top of my head. So, you know, that's his strength. And, you know, he did used to write his own stuff, I think, in, in, back in the day. I think he might have written, I think I'm sure he wrote Dress to Kill um, and those, those films that are very him. Um, and this isn't written by him. I think it's written by three or four different people. Fairly, you know, fairly decent screenwriters, I think. But there's some, for some reason, I think maybe a lack of interest really from him in the subject matter. So this is the film, I think, where he was hired to direct it. You know, let's make that clear rather than being a passion project. Like I think he took it over. I think it was right. It was, it was um, being directed by someone else. I can't remember who it was now. I've got the list here. Yeah. Someone, <laughs> and so it's, not, it's clearly not like something that he's been, it's been percolating in his mind forever, like a lot of his projects um, in oh, the 70s and 80s. Gore, Gore Verbansky. Oh, okay. Oh, well, well not, not a genius then, but, you know. No. <laughs> he's had some duds himself. I mean, if you're getting a film directed by Gore and then Brian De Palma comes along, you go, uh, yeah, can we have a chat, Gore? <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, the dialogue not working and it being, and, and even the acting. Even I think sometimes you know he fails to get particularly good performances out of people. Brian De Palma, you know, he's, you know, I think that if you like the cliche about him, when uh, his height was, he's, just, you know, he just puts the actors where they want to go, where he wants to place them, and then directs around them. You know, he's, he, it was it was like the idea that you know, he was just using them and not really into interested in getting really decent performances out of them. There were some terrible, terrible performances in Brian De Palma films. Body Double, which is like, in my mind, I'm not sure whether it's a masterpiece or the worst film ever made. And I was tempted <laughs> to pick that. Um, the, the main guy in that, I've never, no one's ever seen before or, or after, is terrible and absolutely terrible. Um, anyway, in this, somehow, I feel Tim Robbins and Don Cheadle and Jerry O'Connell is like a kind of pound shop Tom Cruise in this, you know, <laughs> are all bad. Like, they're quite bad. And I don't know whether it's the timing of, of you know, him directing them or the being lumbered with this dialogue that's not great, but it's all yeah. a bit like, you know, we really, really not great performance, not naturalistic at all. This no. film is not, you know, that's the lo- another word that it's not. Uh, Tim Robbins' um, performance in this film made was so bad that whilst watching it, it made me doubt if he'd ever been a good actor. Right. And how, I was like, that's... maybe I was wrong all this time. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. the Hudsucker proxy is a massive part yeah. of shit. Because no, yeah. no way is this the same guy. I know. So that's another reason why I kind of why I picked it really. Because I remember, I remember thinking, there were like mysteries of how do you manage to get a terrible performance from Tim Robbins, who is great in every single other film he's ever made. Well, 
Brian De Palma's done. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's um, a big scene which should, should be like a, a huge sort of like emotional anchor for this scene where um, they've arrived at the planet. They're, so Gary Sinise, Tim Robbins um, uh, are going off on a, a rescue mission. Um, yeah. And they arrive, but then the, the aforementioned um, air explosion turned out to be a little bit more serious, and they're all taking it. <laughs> um, and uh, Connie Nielsen, who plays his wife, yeah. they all decide to jump out of the ship and then drift across to another to another happily placed uh, spaceship, which just happens to come around at the same time. Um, he does something heroic, kind of misses, but they manages just to get them on it. Um, but then he's kind of stranded, slowly ebbing into space, whilst his wife is sort of torn between, you know, throwing herself after him and just yeah. trying to save him a bit. And it, you know, it should have emotion in it. But you just like you're just there going, hurry up and die, hurry up yeah. and die, Tim Robbins, because this is coming, this is getting on now. I want to go to yeah. bed. Yeah, it's painful, isn't it? Absolutely painful, yeah. I wonder, it's one of those things where you want to, I want to, you know, you want to see the behind the scenes. Um, I think from memory on the DVD, there might be a behind the scenes documentary. Obviously, I bought it on DVD, even though, <laughs> even though I thought it was terrible. Um, but I think... Um, That's got a bit of three for two, surely. <laughs> no, I just would, on, on autopilot, I would buy, I've probably got every Brian De Palma film I've ever made on Blu-ray or DVD, just for the sheer, you know, as a collector of his, his works, no matter how bad they are. Um but I think, you know, I wonder whether Tim, the likes, all, all these guys, Tim Robbins, knowing how poor the script was, like just almost give up and go, well, I'm not going to give my best to this film. I'm just going to, you know, go through it. Like, uh, you know, like I'm half asleep or, you know, just did, almost deliberately, you know, undermining yeah. the whole thing. And Maybe you the wonder, really was so awful that they just thought to themselves, I can't. Like, yeah. Uh, so if I underplay it, then maybe people won't notice I've said it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there's a, right, there's a lot of kind of weird underplaying, isn't there? Yeah. Like, you know, which again, in, in, so in, in, you know, in, the, in his thrillers, when he has, you know, when he does have stilted dialogue, at least, you know, everyone's kind of ratcheting it up. They go the other way. And I think that's probably the best thing to do. Make it, you know, everything, you know, his films can be incredibly over the top and, um, and heightened and all of that. But this is weirdly not heightened. It's trying again. That's not his strong point, you know. Don't go, don't go for that. So yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I'm being repetitive now myself, I'm, <laughs> but it uh, it just fails to go anywhere. Okay, because this uh, podcast is all about balance and trying to find the the gem, even in these sort of quite yeah. turgid films. It, what could you use to sell this film if you were the sort of PR guy? knowing what it was, <laughs> but you had yeah. to sell it to someone. And you didn't want them to be horribly disappointed when they'd seen it. So it has to be a truth. You couldn't just go, this is the greatest right. one I've ever seen. And then well, I would say, I would say that it's like one, it's a film almost, which will give you a lot of background to other films of a similar ilk. And you might see, you know, if you were kind of, if you were kind of making a, 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 I don't know, if you were making your own documentary about space films, basically, space mission films, space missions gone wrong, you know, and there are loads of those. This has got all, elements of almost all of them. So it's almost like a kind of, it's a slightly, it's an interesting, it's failure, you know. I think there's an, there are interesting elements of it. Again, you know, going back to that Martian comparison, you're like, if you watch the Martian straight afterwards, you think, oh my God, there's so many little mo things in common. Um, just done well in the Martian and not done well in this. And there are moments, yeah, there's a moment I remember when, so Don Cheadle's character, as we said, is, is, is stranded for a long time on his own and built his own kind of like garden thing. Kind of, um, and there's a shot, there's a shot of him 
later in the film, a kind of, kind of surprise moment. Like, it's very well done. You know, department, so that if you like, the odd moment of, of, um, of shock, almost like a, uh, a jump scare, if you like. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of those in this because he is, a, you know, he does brilliant horror films and thrillers and, and those. So any of those moments that are a bit like his strength are, are fine. And yet it just doesn't quite work. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But <laughs> I guess it's like if you're studying space films and De Palma films, somehow watching this failure, I think, is informative. I think it is, like you know, I think you do learn from it, learn from its failure. Yeah, yeah. And it looks pretty in places, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like middling, isn't it? Middling, middle budget. Actually, I'm sure the budget probably wasn't nearly as, as much as he would have wanted for a film that does climax with, you know, some kind of interesting alien happening thing. I think they had a hundred million, hundred million. Oh, okay. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty decent, I would say. For, it's especially 2,000, for, I would say. Yeah, 2,000 is probably quite a lot. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, I'm sure it didn't make that money back. Um, so, and production design is kind of decent, but if, you know, if very, if, if very derivative, I think. So it feels both derivative, unoriginal, and a forerunner in some cases for other films, and yet not good enough to be, to be celebrated for doing any of those things. Yeah, I, I quite like, because um, it's, it's hard to always place these films, because you, you sometimes feel that maybe you're being a bit harsh because of like, you know, it's been 20 years since this film, so maybe, yeah. maybe it doesn't, you know, maybe at the time, there was sort of like, you know, uh, it, it was a forerunner in, you know, CGI effects or whatever. So I always like to have a quick look around at the sort of films at the time. And 2000 was a good year for films, just generally speaking. I mean, yeah. it was Gladiator, X-Men, Snatch, Memento, Requiem for a Dream, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which we, we mentioned earlier. Yeah. earlier. So, you know, Pitch Black, which is kind of a, right. you know, right. underrated little thing. So, yeah. you know, put although battlefield earth so i think this film uh, he yes. was nominated for a razzie for wasn't he brian de palma yes. but he got he got edged out by the director of battlefield earth uh, which is fair enough because battlefield earth is one of the worst films ever made i think yeah uh, we, we've actually steered away from that from the podcast because it's, you? it's yeah. like you know, punching a child it's just yeah it's too, too obvious and that's why again <laughs> that's probably why i chose it because I, I have noticed though that in, in in this podcast you steer away from the really obvious than you um, terrible films. Yeah, well, the, um, the whole prospect, the whole um, ethos at the first, we weren't sort of setting out to sort of slam films. It was, we was like, let's prove that the reviewers are wrong and watch these yeah. films that have been reviewed horribly and, and find out that they're actually really good. But then we've actually found out that reviewers tend to know what they're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's been very few that we've saved from the bunker. Right. So, because interest, because Empire, I think, in their review, um, called it the worst film of the year. Um, so, and I'm not sure if they'd, rec- they rec- how many films of the year they'd seen at that point, but um, they were pretty, it was a no, it was a one-star review, which for I think is fairly rare, actually. That, so that were, is quite rare, yeah. Yeah, and they were quite scathing about it. Um, so, uh, why did I mention that? Oh yeah, because I think the idea that it was a good year for films, yeah, I th- and also, when you think of those films, particularly the ones that, that probably have effects, like Pitch Black, for example, as you say, yeah, uh, this feels more dated, doesn't it? Yeah, um, like when you think about it, like, when you put it in that context, you go, well, actually, yeah. this wasn't great. Yeah, there's something about it. Again, I keep, it, it is hard to explain it until you start watching it. Like, you know, compare it, again, to talk about Apollo 13 and The March of those films. And even, but all those films you mentioned as being good films of that year that just kind of have a, uh, a fairly flowing, um, authentic feel to them. This just doesn't have that, and it does feel weirdly dated for a film that it, that that was that 
that could have been, you know, could have looked great. I mean, it kind of looks okay, doesn't it? But there are just certain elements of it that just don't feel quite right. Yeah. In fact, the whole thing doesn't feel quite right. <laughs> yeah, and I say, apart from that, yeah, the, the toy launch you mentioned at the beginning, there's, there's, there, there's no rocket launches. Everyone wants to see a rocket launch. Yeah, right. Space, right. Yeah, so, I didn't think of that. Yeah. It's quite, yeah, every, every time it... Leads you up to a like, oh, this is going to be exciting. It's like 137 days later. <laughs> God's sake. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's almost like clearly they decided to not spend the budget on that. <laughs> yeah. On yeah. the rocket. Instead, they yeah. just formulated how to put beer into cartons. So, yeah, which is important. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was quite excited when I saw that. And then I saw that it was set this year and realized like the Back to the Future hoverboard probably something I'll never see. <laughs> Yeah, and they don't really bother, do they, with other kind of, you know, futuristic developments, apart from, you know, the fact they do actually go to Mars, <laughs> you know. But in terms of, like, day-to-day stuff, they just don't really bother with it, do they? Yeah, they put, like, a, a whining sound effect on a car that turns up at one point, so it kind of yeah. sounds futuristic yeah. and electric. Yeah, that's and about then, it. Yeah. But then instantly Tim Robbins gets into an old-fashioned car, like, old, old car, classic, yes. to drive home. Um, it yeah. didn't take his wife, actually, in my notes. I made, I made four notes. <laughs> one was about the beer cartons. The, fact, the other one was that it was set this year. Uh, yeah. the, the, and the third note was that he just left the party without his wife. Um, well, you know, it's an interesting observation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait. Right. It was a two-seater. I, she would have yeah. fit. Right, of course she would have fit, yeah. Should, it, it, that's weird, yeah. I, I, I remember Gary Sneezer's hair being terrible in it as well. In fact, progressively worse as it goes on. Um, just kind of floppy all over the place hair it just doesn't yeah anyway Gary Sneezer is one of those actors where like at his best he's good but like when he's um, doing the kind of middling he's got yeah. such such a sort of fixed face that it just looks like a bad CGI <laughs> yeah God, I know what you mean yeah and also tends to slightly he's overacting a bit I think as opposed to the rest I think he's he's. A, he, I mean he's terrible yeah. as well in this film well, he's, and he's sad good. and he keeps seeing his best yeah. friend and his missus getting on all the time. And he's like, oh, yeah. I remember when I used to have a missus. And they're like, ha look at us. <laughs> we'll have yeah, a dance sadness, for you. Because Sanders becomes very repetitive, yeah. And he's, it's a one-note It's a one note character, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he's also in another Brian De Palma film, which he's, he, which he's not great either. But Snake but that, Eyes, is he in? Snake Eyes, which I, and I, really, I genuinely really like. See, the, the other thing about the, the, I think Brian De Palma films generally can be debated, you know, for hours on end, because I really like Snake Eyes. And again, like there are massive flaws with it, but I will watch that film regularly. Yes. And yeah, I can acknowledge that Gary Sneeze is pretty poor in it. And there are loads of terrible moments in it, but as a whole thing, I kind of love it really. Yeah, it's kind of the beginning of sort of Mad Cage, right? It's the... Yeah, Mad Cage, exactly. Yeah, and it's got a great, had, had a massively spectacular ending with a huge like flood sequence and like you know which they which they filmed. I think it might even be on. It's again an extra. You, you'll see it. You can find it. But they cut it. The department decided it, he wanted to change <laughs> it completely, and that is classic department. That is. Yeah. So no, that I, so if you like, I put this film in, in the department canon because. I don't feel many people are going to be passionately in favour of this film. Well, I haven't said that right. Today, I was just looking around, and there's a New Yorker, um, you know, which is one of the best magazines in the world, and one of their film critics picked it as being, like, you know, genuinely wanted to pick it as, like, a masterclass film. I was like, oh, my God, that's so weird. So, yeah, there are, it does have its champions. Yeah, there was, um, I was reading on the wiki page when it's trying to, because it tries to balance the reviews, people trying to find ones. It, um, in a, a French publication, they put it in their top like top five films of 2000. Wow. 
And I'm yeah. looking at this list going, I don't see how that fits in there. Yeah. Um, unless it's like the a French, generally the first list or kind of thing. Well, the French love De Palma though. They, you know, they, they have their, their, those cahiers du cinéma, you know, um, real, real proper French critic types love a bit of De Palma. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me too much. There you um, go then. Okay, yeah. so we, we tried to find something good about it, then we just slammed it again for another 10 minutes. But... There's a good, good jump scare with, with, you know, there's a good jump scare, that's one thing. And yep. um, um, students of cinema, students of De Palma cinema and space science fiction films, I think we'll get a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Let's, let's <laughs> leave it there. Okay, cool. Um, that's good. Uh, wh- you obviously mentioned a lot of your work earlier in the podcast, but where can we find you online if you want to sort of quickly jump to your bits and pieces? It's it's basically my name, yeah, Boyd Boyd Hilton, yeah, because um, I've got such a weird name. Um, yeah, so, you're, you're blue ticked as well. Uh, oh yeah, okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think that's when I used to do um, entertainment. Yeah, that's that'll get you followers. Um, that's that's my you know that's accidental accidental blue tick. Um, <laughs> so I'm Boyd Hilton on Twitter and um, Instagram and all those. Yeah, yeah. There I am. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. If we were to draw a graph of my process of my method, something like this. So Ian, so Ian, so Ian, action. Wizard, you shall not pass! Cut! So Ian, so Ian, so Ian. A slightly different take on the interview where they weren't really defending the film. I had to try and sort of suck out little nuggets from him about things that would, you know, balance the scales because uh, we, we pretty much went pretty, pretty hard into I think, this film. I, think, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a film that you enjoy for, for the reasons, but can, can wholeheartedly or agree that it isn't very good, but still like it because it isn't very good. Like, you know, the, the, that's the whole point of like a guilty pleasure, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. That, you know, it's a load of old rubbish, but um, you watch it and enjoy it anyway. Uh, I suppose if it's got lofty aspirations and it's got you know delusions of grandeur in terms of what it's aiming for and it falls very short of that at least you yeah. can enjoy it for that for the it's attempt. worth watching just to see if you can spot gary nese um gary nese's gary sinese's expression change at any point so. <laughs> it's eyeliner his eyeliner rather as well. <laughs> his eyeliners yeah yeah oh, odd, film. odd film but oh, sure. brilliant interview thanks very much boyd it's my turn to do the the special feature, as we're not special calling it. Special feature, what happened next? I said, what happened next on the special feature? This week it's with Christopher. He talks about District 9. Correct. Lovely. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, beautiful. Now, do you remember District 9? Do you remember it, Matthew? I'm cast my mind back. I remember it to be an, a film which left me both breathless and excited at the same time. <laughs> so breathless Very and much... excited, pretty much like any trip downstairs or upstairs or whatever. <laughs> uh, so District yeah. 9 came out in 2009. It was brilliantly received. I mean, it's one of those certified fresh audience score oh, yeah. and tomato meters out through the roof. Still now, it's like 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Produced by Peter Jackson. Uh, Neil Blomkamp was the, the writer and director on this. It's one of his first... Well, it is his first feature film. And it's, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. On the back of uh, sort of a YouTube short film that he'd made that Peter Jackson sort of had his eye on him and uh, sort of invested in him in terms of getting this film uh, produced. 
and it, it's it's fantastic and it's a really interesting story there's loads of, sort of political undercurrents to it loads of you know nuanced performances and you know it's got like a lot of talking head sort of documentary style to it as well the cast is not well very yeah known. i mean this introduced uh shelto copley to the world right I yeah he plays uh wickers uh who's the, the character Vickers. Okay, so the premise of the movie is that they come to Earth as refugees, essentially, or they these aliens or these prawns, um, and it's about apartheid. It's about slum life. Um, yep. It's about racism. It's about everything. It's all intertwined. But what happens to Charles Copley's character is that he gets accidentally infected by uh, alien fluid which gradually point out the spoiler alert because just in case I don't, i'm not normally precious about this but if someone hasn't seen this film i very much recommend that they stop listening now yeah as much as i want them to listen to our podcast yeah stop listening right now go give us a five-star review yeah. and then watch the film give that a five-star review and then come back to this because spoilers heareth follow you have been warned proceed christopher Thank you for that. And I should always do that as well. I forget. Um, but I'm so smug and uh, <laughs> I, I'm so, what's the word uh, I'm looking for? Self-righteous uh, arsehole. Self-righteous and yeah, just a twat. Yeah. So basically he has this infection from this, this fluid, which is essentially alien gas or, or petrol or, or some Excuse sort of energy me. source. And um, ultimately he turns into one of the aliens gradually over the course of the end of the movie so his arm he goes full prawn he goes full prawn his arm goes first and his eye he starts eating cat food out of a tin and and so he helps christopher who's the main character on the alien side and his son escape using an old spaceship to the kind of main mothership that's sort of aloft and on lockdown in the sky now great fantastic imagery and special effects with the the budget and action was amazing like like you say for the the budget they've given on this film and like uh, for the style of film that you're watching suddenly like at the end you get this sort of big action piece it's Mm. just brilliant yeah yeah and there's loads of of humanity and there's there's some good emotions as well it's not just yeah not just a massive shoot em up it's got some real depth to it um so the thing I want to touch on really is something like kind of rewatching it again, or at least rewatching the ending to try and refresh on really what happens. Is that it is really ambiguous in terms of, you know, how and why and what this disease or this infection is. Because Christopher, the alien that, that uh, ultimately ends up helping Wiki, um, yeah, Wick- Wickers, um, seems to be very aware that this uh, this fluid would would have a diverse effect on the human, and it would. He doesn't seem very surprised at all that actually he would start to turn into an alien, and says that he can fix him with other yeah. kind of stuff that he's got back on the ship. So they have like a two-way thing where he helps him to help each other out. Things like quid pro quo. And, uh, you know, Christopher's discovered that they're doing all these hideous and heinous crimes and experiments on, on the alien, so... Anyway, Christ almighty, I'm explaining the whole movie here. The, the, end scene, <laughs> the, the end scene, the end scenes are Christopher escapes and doing so with the support of, of Wickers, Shouto, Shouto Copley's character, who's well and truly on his way to becoming a prawn. Yeah. So one of the, one of the last scenes is Shouto looking up into the sky and seeing Christopher escape to the mothership. Then the following scene, or the, the couple of the last scenes, is uh, his wife picking up on the doorstep a, a kind of a metal origami flower that's been yeah. made. And this this is alluded to earlier on in the film when uh, Wickus is quite handy and crafty and will make often make little things and trinkets for his wife out of bits of rubbish and trash and the things that he can find. So ultimately thinking, right, so Charlotte's not dead, he's alive. Um, so there's hope there because he was a good character. And then the final shot is of a full prawn in a rubbish dump making another metal flower out of it. And he's quite clearly sort of wearing the rags of the clothing that... Yeah, he's got um, a, 
he's got a yellow eye, uh, which is a, the alien eye, but he's retained a blue eye or a green eye from his human form. Yeah. So we know he's alive. And then it cuts, it, it just cuts to black and then we get the credits. So you're left with this thing. Ah, oh, oh no. Oh, good. He's alive, but he's an alien. So some time has passed between him sort of just having an arm and an eye to becoming full alien. So he's obviously communicating yeah. some way with his wife to say, look, I'm still around. This is for you. There's still hope because obviously he goes completely missing. So the next scene would be, uh, <laughs> hang on a minute. It's coming. It's coming. It's, no wonder you took so long to explain the film. You were padding, man. Oh, seriously. You were giving yourself think time. I'm treading water. I'm treading water now. So, yeah, the, the, the next scene would be the ship arriving back through the clouds. Right. So, one of the other main premises of this movie is that these aliens that have arrived. Uh, were leaderless. There was no kind of hierarchy. They were all just basically starving aliens that were, you know, at the most, the bottom of their kind of existence, sleeping and and living in squalid on their spaceship. Yeah. But in the time, in the time that it's taken, Shalpo to completely change into an alien, some sort of hierarchy is formed and Christopher's obviously rallied the troops up on the spaceship and it comes down. And to really... I guess rescue uh, Wickers, who's now going, to, would I would say become uh, the new leader of the aliens, but to wreak havoc. So you'll see the next shot, basically the ship coming back down, and a beam of light, or or Christopher, uh, not Christopher, but Wickers looking up and seeing the ship, and uh, the doors opening, and potentially just an idea, other spacecraft then coming out of it to land. It's like a whoa, they're back. And oh no, what does this mean? Are they coming to attack? Are they going to get the revenge? Are they coming back to get Wickers? Or is this going to be a revolution? What is it? What is it? You know? Don't ask me. I have no idea. You just made this up. So Matthew, I realise I've gone a bit over the top there, but I really got a little bit carried away with this idea because I I kind of wanted to... You basically wrote a whole sequel, didn't you? I'm writing a sequel in my head because I realised this is my idea, but I've, I've not really, I've not really thought it through. So no. Nah, but anyway, that's the next. I mean, in a nutshell, I'm telling you what the next scene is. But then, then it would go to black, and then you would have the sequel where whatever happens happens. The other thing I was thinking about when I was looking up on this movie and reading bits and bobs is that the fluid that um, changes Wickers into an, a prawn got me thinking: what if the aliens were humans? Dun, and, they're, dun, dun. And, they're, <laughs> and they're returning to Earth. They weren't oh. refugees. They were returning to Earth. Oh, so maybe they were like, yeah, the, the, the first people, they seeded Earth in the first place. They went off, came back, but then there was a fuel leak or something inside the ship, turning them all into prawns. No, no. Yeah, yes, yes, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Or they, that, <laughs> that was some sort of evolution or some, some sort of, um, I don't know, splicing, if you like, or an experiment thing. And it's, that's why Christopher's not very surprised when he starts to show all these alien tropes and grow appendages and things yeah like it is that. weird isn't it because he's not surprised at all he's kind of like oh yeah that happens if you do that if you spray that shit in your face you will you will turn into a prawn he doesn't seem at all phased yeah. by oh, this. and he oh. knows obviously how to fix him he just can't do it right now he has to go away to yeah. get the shit to come back to fix vicus yeah up I properly just, i just oh, think yeah. i've and i've mm. said i've not read that anywhere i've got to say just i haven't stolen that idea that's something i've come up with by myself 
Well done, mate. Well, it's nice that you're like thinking outside the box. I mean, like there's the box with what we're meant to be thinking about. Yeah. yeah? And yeah. you've gone and thought about something else entirely different and then brought it back and put it in our box. Yeah. And, and, and now our box is broken because well, it, it's not got what it's meant to have in it, Chris, is what I'm no, trying to say. Uh, and also I've made the podcast twice or three times longer than it needed to be. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Uh, cheerio. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so right. it's your turn next. Thanks. Right. Yeah, I'll, it's my turn next. There's going to be a bit of a gapish, I think. I guess so. Yeah. The next thing you'll hear from us will be our live podcast. We're also off to London to Big Smoke. Yeah. So yeah, we've, we're guesting on Flix Watcher podcast, which we're very excited about because we've managed. Very excited. To, we've picked two good films, which we won't tell you what they are. But no, not not films, but good films. Harder than it sounded. Um, so yeah, so th- th- so th- there's going to be a, a bit of a gap, I guess, before we get back to this. So it give me time to think about it properly and not just, you know, come in here and paddle shit like you've just done. <laughs> well, you know, I like to keep you on your toes, Matthew, and, and nothing's ever straightforward in my life. I mean, this is another complicated aspect in, of what I do every day. It's, it's some... good that you bring that, bring that to all of us. Though. That's, that's I overthink nice. everything all the time. So I guess next time you'll hear us will be the next time you hear us, I guess. We'll be live. So come on down to Southampton Town uh, and and see our faces. We'd love to see you. Cheerio there, Matt. Bye. Bye. Chris. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Superpod 2020. Raising money for sport relief. Two days of great comedy and sporting podcasts. Desert Island Dicks. Sports Spiel, Life Goals with Theo Delaney, The Dredgeland Podcast Spectacular, and more. Saturday 7th and Sunday 8th of March at The Social in Southampton. And you can be there too. Free entry until 7pm and then ticket only from 7pm. Tickets available now at superpod.co.uk. If you can't be in Southampton, the whole event will be streamed live online on your smart speaker and on Facebook Live. Find Superpod UK on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and use the hashtag Superpod2020. For more information, visit superpod.co.uk. 